0: Hello listeners, this is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go
1: to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I
2: feel fine. I feel Okay, I'm not. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh?
3: When that baby light, there's
4: no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Thirty-two minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11.
5: Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. Eagle has landed. That's one small step for
0: man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 184 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 9, the Return. We ended the previous episode, number 183, shortly after the return of the lunar module to the command module. The last piece of the complicated moon program had been proven. The United States could fly those complicated spacecrafts to the moon, land the lunar module, launch again, and rendezvous. All the machines worked, and so did the humans in mission control and the astronauts. I have a clip here with the assessment of the Lunar Module Test flight from the perspective of Grumman and Downey.
4: Eight years ago, the United States Space Program committed itself to a plan for landing a man on the moon, which involved sending a spaceship uh, up to the moon going into moon orbit and then detaching a ferry ship to go from the moon orbiting another ship down to the surface of the moon and after exploration on the moon, taking the astronauts back to the mothership in moon orbit, and then coming home. Today, eight years later, that concept was proved out with the first manned flight of the Grumman Lunar Excursion Module, which uh, Jim McDivitt and Rusty Schweikert have just flown for six hours, tested all of its systems, proved out that it uh, can indeed go to the moon's surface, get off again, and re-rendezvous with a mothership. Scott McLeod uh, is a test astronaut for the Grumman Aircraft Engineering Company out at uh, Bethpage, Long Island. He's been helping us out uh, through this flight uh, in a mock-up of the lunar module with our CBS News correspondent, Steve Rowan. Scott, uh, through this whole six hours of maneuvering today, uh, you've been following each of the maneuvers uh, as you have been training with the astronauts on those maneuvers. How do you think it all went? Oh, we're happy as
2: a clam, Walter. Everything went very successful, and I think we proved all of the work that has gone on for the past years.
4: Was there any point of the flight, uh, Scott, that, uh, that uh, in its actual execution today seemed harrier than had been anticipated?
2: No, I don't believe so. I think everything went uh, pretty well according to plan and according to schedule. I, probably the only differences were the flight planning, as Steve and I had been discussing earlier.
4: Well, you'd notice perhaps uh, in the <clears throat> rendezvous maneuvers that they were actually about five miles or so below what the flight plan said uh, in the LEM, but then the command module was in a different place too, wasn't it, Scotty? Yes, I think the,
2: uh, the difference there is because of the real-time flight planning in that what they're interested in doing is the burns of the descent, the ascent engine, and the RCS maneuvers, and not necessarily hitting a specific point in space <laughs> Excuse me. Except for that point when they come back to the command module. Well, the
4: LEM uh, crew then doesn't really worry about where it is in relationship to the Earth. No, no, just the heat shield. And out of Downey, California, where they build the command module, which has proved out so well now in uh, three flights of the uh, Apollo program, uh, this the Apollo 9, uh, Leo Krupp is the test astronaut for North American Rockwell. And Leo, uh, it looked like it went mighty well up to now, hasn't it?
2: certainly has, Walter, and it was very nice to have the whole orchestra together for a change, and I thought the music that the lunar module and the command module played was certainly beautiful. You're getting poetic, Leo.
4: <laughs> Thank you, sir. I think spaceflight uh, perhaps inspires that in men, and particularly those of you who work so closely with the program and indeed are the program for uh, manned flight. Now, Leo, does that, uh, does that little dock uh, latching indicator problem uh, give you any concern for the future?
2: Uh, no, sir. I think that was probably just a case of, of Dave not holding the switch to the extend-release long enough. Uh, so he pushed, the, he pushed the limb away, but he came off of the switch before the, the limb actually separated, so the docking latches were still holding the two vehicles together. And the fact that he was able to get it back in the right configuration leads me to believe this was the problem. So I'm sure that won't happen again.
4: Well, I understand that even though that closing rate is uh, around 1,500 of a mile per hour, which is mighty slow, uh, they still a pretty good jolt when the two spacecraft come together.
2: Well, there is a little disturbance, especially when the vehicles are light like they are now. Now, in the transposition and docking, the uh, the S-4B was attached, and we had a very heavy vehicle, so we didn't have too much. But now it's like two very light uh, sports cars coming together, so you will get a little disturbance. But uh, as soon as he makes contact, McDivitt would go ahead and thrust on in to keep the probe from bouncing out to make sure he pushes it into the funnel to get a capture latch, which he did very nicely.
0: Back in the lunar module, McDivitt and Swigert prepared to leave the ascent stage for the last time. Here's the clip.
4: McDivitt and Swigert will leave this spacecraft, which has proved out remarkably well in its okay, very letter, first uh, test. It's free
3: and, uh, you're free. Proceed into the tunnel here when I get straight away. Okay, Dave. Uh, we'll start getting ready for the I'm the you. Okay. Why would you take a break for a while? No, we just take a lot to do. Man, when I take a break, i have go up to bed for three days. All right. Me, did you get that? All uh,
4: right. Spider, you can copy. They actually can go to bed practically for three days. They'll have we very little to do. We three days off. The remaining five days of this flight before they return to work. Is that Saturday flight. and Sunday and, we'll and That was up. Jim McDivitt. Hard
3: day's work, and uh, it looks real good, Chris.
6: Thank you, Smokey. I need it. Uh Yeah,
3: uh, Jim, we've still got you for about another minute here. Okay, uh, well, listen, I hope the whole world's working, but I tell you, I think we got the greatest kind of flight controllers uh, that we could have any place that we could be found. i like to thank you all. am sure the guys up here would, too.
2: Rod, Spider, we uh, we
4: copy. Thank you very much. Spider and deliver shortly will be climbing back into the command module, and then they will cut loose the very successful Roman lunar module to uh, take off into a much higher orbit, firing its engines until depletion of fuel. The lower stage is circling the Earth at about 180-200 mile orbit, something like that, and will probably re-enter in about a month's time.
0: Even before crawling back into the command module, McDivitt said he was tired and ready for a three-day holiday. Another 140 hours would pass before touchdown in the Atlantic, but the crew had achieved more than 90% of the mission objectives. There were still things to do, such as making more service module burns, a total of eight throughout the flight, and, of course, jettisoning the ascent stage. Ground control radioed a firing signal to park the lunar module in a 6,965 by 235 kilometer orbit. The crew watched the departing craft a while, and then settled down to the more mundane task of checking systems, conducting navigation sightings, and taking pictures. After the mission reached T-plus 10 days, it was just about time to return. Here's Walter Cronkite with the coverage of Apollo 9's re-entry.
4: Good morning, and this is the day that Apollo 9 comes home. The spacecraft is now out over the western coast of Australia on its last revolution of the Earth. In another half hour, over Hawaii, at 11.31.14 PST, 14 seconds after 11.31 and that's uh, just after dawn in Hawaii. David Scott, the command module pilot, will fire the service propulsion system engine to slow down the Apollo 9 and to let it drop out of orbit. It'll go through the searing heat of reentry at some 2,700 degrees, and from that height of 240 miles up and some 6,200 miles from its landing spot, eventually will drop into the Atlantic 1,000 miles south-southeast of where it started at Cape Kennedy. Ten days and one hour and four miles, four million miles ago. At that landing area, 350 miles northwest of Puerto Rico, 376 miles northeast of Grand Turk Island in the Bahamas, the helicopter ship, the Guadalcanal, is standing by to receive the Apollo 9. The weather there, 2,000 feet high. There are some scattered clouds, more at 12,000 feet high. Ten miles visibility, though, light variable winds, waves one to two feet high, swells six to eight feet, the temperature 73 degrees. And that's just about perfect for the splashdown of a spacecraft. Some 480 miles north, the south of Bermuda, where the spacecraft would have landed at the end of 150 orbits, which was originally planned, there is still a large storm system and waves are said to be as high as 12 feet there. So the astronauts are very pleased indeed that they're coming back at this new landing zone off Grand Turk Island. Aboard the helicopter ship Guadalcanal, we have color cameras to bring you pictures, we hope, of the arrival, the splashdown of the Apollo 9 spacecraft. Aboard the uh, Guadalcanal our correspondents who will give us a word picture even as we watch these sensational pictures. That's a beautiful picture from the Guadalcanal right now. And let's hear first from Ron Nesson. Board the USS Guadalcanal. The weather is splendid here at the Apollo landing point, 315
3: miles northeast of San Juan, 743 miles southeast of Cape Kennedy. In fact, the weather is so good that the skipper of this Apollo recovery ship Guadalcanal says the retrieval of the astronauts is not even going to be exciting. Captain Roy Sutter took one look at the calm seas in bright sunshine this morning and said the recovery will be mundane and routine because the perfect weather took all the romance out of it. The skipper plans to position his ship just a half mile from where the astronauts should splash down and then maneuver in even closer to give the worldwide television audience a close-up view of the recovery. Visibility stretches 10 miles all the way to the horizon, so the parachute should be visible if the spacecraft is on target. Just a slight breeze, 12 miles an hour, is rippling the sea in long, gentle swells. The Guadalcanal's five helicopters are getting ready to take off for their recovery station. Murray Thomson is on the flight deck to describe activities there. Twenty-four hours ago, anyone standing on this desk deck a risk being blown away by high wave storms and winds. But today there's a good chance you might get a sight back. The flight deck is an array of colors, each color representing a separate job for each of the men taking care of the helicopter. The well canal is turned into the wind now to give five rescue helicopters perfect launch into the air. They should be airborne any time now. Two other helicopters are standing by here on the deck in case there is an emergency. A mechanical failure or anything like that, perhaps an injury to the pilot. The rescue helicopters will fan out over a recovery area. But because bridges, are so days, the phases, agency you so confident to in the back of the phases are smaller in numbers and closer into the recovery ship than ever before. Two of the helicopters will be eight miles away, another will be four miles off, and two will circle just about overhead, the, uh, over, orbiting the call the Each helicopter carrying a four-man crew and a three-man team of broad The primary helicopter, number 54, also has on board the chief, now to back the recovery, Dr. Clarence, is He may go into the water. Helicopter are now turning over, and we should have launch air in a very few
4: moments. So the helicopters are taking off from the Guadalcanal to await the arrival of the Apollo Nine spacecraft, which should be uh, dropping out of the skies just about on target. There it is hoped in uh, some fifty-three minutes from now, fifty-one minutes from now. The seas look calmer, and the. Winds look uh, certainly as calm as had been predicted and the pictures down from downrange. These are beautiful pictures. The Guadalcanal is the only ship in the immediate area of this recovery. There are no outlying destroyers as had been uh, the case in previous landings. So confident uh, now has the space program become and the Navy that uh, the spacecraft are going to come down uh, right on target. They have been throughout the Apollo and the Gemini mission few have missed by more than uh, two or three miles. This accounted for by the fact that Gemini and now Apollo have a guiding capability. There is a small lift built into their heat shield and they can uh, guide themselves to a certain extent into a landing. And with the computer calculations of just when they should be firing their, uh, their engines and, uh, uh, that small guidance capability, they've been bringing these spacecraft down right on target. With this great visibility today, uh, we should uh, hope to see the three great parachutes blossom out from the spacecraft, uh, dropping the spacecraft to slowly into the water near the Guadalcanal. Weather has been a problem in the last uh, couple of days of this flight. Uh, it was not up to then, but uh, certain minimums are required for a safe landing, of course. The winds cannot be too high. The waves cannot be too high for the, uh, while the Apollo 9 spacecraft, any Apollo spacecraft will float. It's not a very good boat and uh, could put the, uh, the crew into a pretty uncomfortable condition. Weather consultant Gordon Barnes is with us in our studio here in New York and can tell us something about our weather problems and how it looks today. Well, Walter, there's certainly a lot better today than they have been.
6: Uh, out over the Atlantic, a storm system that dumped some two to four inches of snow on the northeastern states just one week ago today is still stalled out in the Atlantic, halfway between Newfoundland and uh, Ireland, and shows no signs of moving. And in the upper right-hand corner, of your picture you you notice a large band of cloudiness that dominates not only... The northeastern states but also a portion of the atlantic ocean those clouds will remain in that area uh, for at least another 24 to 36 hours so that it was necessary to move the recovery area reports that we have from the original recovery area this morning that is some uh, 280 miles south southwest of bermuda indicate that seas are still running some 10 to 12 feet high very gusty northwesterly winds 15 to 30 knots in fact we even have 30 knot winds here in the new york area but downrange, where they will now recover the, uh, the astronauts uh, near the USS Guadalcanal, well, the conditions are really very, very perfect, and uh, maybe today, uh, Waller, for the first time for me anyway, we will be able to see the parachutes
4: live and in, in living color. Yes, we, we've seen them uh, before, but uh, at great distance, and I, don't, I think we didn't have color at those uh, in the earlier no, parachute uh, pictures, as I recall. It's nice to know the weather is good down there, Gordon. I'd hate to think those fellows on the Soviet trawler getting the bouncing around they must have gotten uh, before. I wonder, actually, if they made it. I haven't heard a report that they were able to keep up with the the Guadalcanal on the run down from the Bermuda site. Uh, You know we have had uh, Russian trawlers, which are... In fact, uh, believed to be, and almost certainly are, spy ships uh, well equipped with electronic gear to watch uh, the landings of our spacecraft ever since we first embarked on the space program. And there is one of them, uh, there has been one of them along up to now. It was uh, up in the Bermuda area, just five miles uh, off the fantail of the Guadalcanal and traipsing right along, uh, kind of a little bird dog there, uh, lapping along behind uh, our prime recovery ship. I haven't heard yet whether it uh, was able to make the fast run on south to the new recovery zone. It might have thrown the Russian plans off considerably. Walter, on our ship reports that we receive here at our space weather center,
6: uh, we don't get the Russian troller reports. We get everything but.
4: (laughs) CBS News color coverage of the flight of Apollo 9 will continue in a moment.
0: On March 13, 1969, after 151 revolutions in 10 days, 1 hour, and 1 minute, Apollo 9 splashed down safely in the Atlantic, northeast of Puerto Rico, completing a 6 million kilometer flight that had cost an estimated $340 million. Less than an hour later, the crew was deposited by helicopter aboard the carrier USS Guadalcanal. Here's how the splashdown and recovery was reported by Walter Cronkite.
4: Good evening. The three Apollo 9 astronauts are safely aboard the helicopter carrier Guadalcanal tonight. A pinpoint splashdown in the Atlantic, 300 miles north of Puerto Rico, climaxed their 10-day space mission. Here's how the recovery went.
3: A report from the uh, command post on the ship
4: that uh, it is
3: three miles, three miles away. Not the closest uh, landing by a spacecraft, but uh, very accurate indeed. The Canal has talked to the astronauts inside their spacecraft by radio. And as the loudspeaker on the ship uh, just announced to the crew, the astronauts are in good shape. The Recovery 3 helicopter is uh, just over the uh, spacecraft now. That's the main uh, recovery helicopter, the first team. The spacecraft is in the water.
4: One minute afternoon in the Atlantic, and there's the helicopter. It splashed down exactly on the second. Piloted by the We've never seen this before. We've never had such a close-up. We actually watch the hatch open.
0: Now I have NBC's perspective on the egress from the capsule. Almost close
5: enough now to jump in there and virtually touch them. See the fragment on the outside of the craft. The wind is
1: successful. fresh air to breathe for the first time in ten days. There's what somebody
5: somebody
1: coming out. Let's see if we can see through binoculars who it is. One astronaut is uh oh, right. sort of took a little tumble into the life raft. He's fine. He's got a a yellow um, life light belt around his waist. Oh now he changed his life raft. The orange one is to drop into when you get out of the hatch and then you move on to the yellow one to wait to be picked up by the helicopter can't see from here which one uh which one of the astronauts was the first out there's the second and he's out like he's got two balloons on his oh, uh uh-uh. life raft gets up on end. But uh, he's fine, he's just... One more astronaut still inside the spacecraft. And the Frogman seemed to be spending just a moment or two uh, making that orange life raft a bit more stable. Helicopter 54 moving in now and lowering the Billy Pugh net about rolling in. He rolled in. Is that Scott? Scott.
5: There's a message uh, that's just been relayed here. Aircraft high above trying to talk to the Grotto Canal to pass on a message from the White House to the astronauts when they arrive on the ship. So perhaps we'll have a phone call from... President Nixon, or at least contact a contact and message of congratulations on their safe arrival back after their historic mission. The
1: first astronaut has been pulled up into Commander Rankin's helicopter.
5: minutes after splashdown and uh, we're certainly towards the end of this rescue as far as getting the astronauts aboard. We are just about at the end of the pickup.
1: Colonel McDivitt is in the helicopter now. All three astronauts are in the helicopter. Scott first, then Schweikert now McDivitt. And the helicopter will be coming back to the deck
0: for the welcome ceremony. In case you missed the exit order, that was Scott first, Swikert second, and McDivitt third. Here's a clip with the helicopter landing on the Guadalcanal and McDivitt's comments on the flight.
5: And here's Colonel McDivitt, first man out. Swikert and Scott hear them. Ben James, the NASA public affairs officer at the foot of the stairway. Okay, astronauts are coming out now and...
3: They look pretty well.
5: now, astronauts, but it's certainly been a long time since we uh, left land, and obviously I don't have my sea legs or my land legs either, but it's sure good to be back. Uh, Matter of fact, I think you guys kept us here on the Guanacara, kept us going the last few days. We heard you had a big cake here, and every night when we were eating our evening meal, we discussed how much of the cake we're going to eat. As a matter of fact, I don't think we ate very much the last couple of days just getting ready for it. We've had a real good time, and I hope we uh, accomplish something worthwhile. Uh, the whole space program is made up of just thousands of people. We're just a very small part of it. And you guys are really a number one for us. Thanks to everybody who's helped.
0: Then the debriefings and celebrations began. At a ceremony in Washington with an address by Vice President Agnew, Lunar Module Development Leaders Carol Bolander of the Manned Spacecraft Center and Llewellyn Evans of Grumman were given the NASA Exceptional Service Medal and NASA Public Service Award, respectively. Apollo 9 was a very successful flight, but there were some improvements that could be made. The lunar module performance was more than sufficient, but there were still some nagging problems with some of the instruments and with some of the mission control's procedures. During the flight, controllers had improvised over and over again, passing long instructions to McDivitt and Swigert to do this or that differently, or to work around something that just wasn't right. But of course, that was one of the reasons NASA flew Apollo 9, to find the bugs and to fix them. Flight Director Gene Krantz wrote in his book that several times during the mission, he reached task saturation while controlling two spacecrafts and planning and executing the mission. Krantz was convinced that the only way to ensure effective support for spacecraft operation when the lunar module and command module were separated in lunar orbit was with two separate teams in mission control, one following the command module and the other following the limb. Two complete communication sets were already available at each console to support shift handover so the hardware was in place. The dual flight director arrangement would be tested on Apollo 10.